This morning, if I were to um, take an unopened box of Ikea furniture and put it in the middle of this room and gave us all the tasks this morning in an hour to put it together. Some of you are having a panic attack right now. I'm not going to ask you to do that. You're okay. But if I were to do that, I think our room would be divided equally into two groups of people. The first group would pull out all of the hardware, set it out neatly on the ground, crack open the instructions, and begin reading it like a Hunger Games novel. That's what you do. This group would build the furniture with perfection. Not a single piece missing or out of place. Second group would be a little bit different. They would open the box, dump it out on the floor, begin to eyeball how to put it together, totally disregarding the instructions because, in the words of Kimberly Wilkins, ain't nobody got time for that. This group would build the furniture only to notice at the end there is a huge missing piece still lying on the floor. The first group feels fulfilled. The second group feels frustrated. Why? Because in most cases, to be given something without instructions leads to frustration. And as we enter this morning into James chapter four, we remember over the last couple of weeks, James has been calling out Christians who have been fighting with one another, and as a result, are embracing worldliness. To encourage them, James gives them a hope-filled promise in verse six. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The question now is this, how? How? How are the original readers, including ourselves, to experience the grace of God? In other words, where are the stinking instructions? This morning as we look at James chapter four, specifically verses seven to 10, James is going to give us an instruction manual with four steps to experiencing the grace of God. So if you've come to church this morning in need of grace, in other words, if you're breathing, James is going to provide us with four practical steps to take today to experience the grace of God. So let's begin by looking at verse seven. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. How can you experience the grace of God? Step number one, here it is. Humbly submit to God. Humbly submit to God. The command here is not just to obey God, though that is implied. The command is to specifically submit to God. The word in the original language literally means to arrange under. It's the same word Paul uses in Romans 13 when he's writing to Christians about submitting to the governing authorities. It's the same word Paul also uses later in Ephesians chapter five when talking about spouses in marriage submitting to one another. The idea here is of someone willingly yielding to another. So to submit to God is not simply obeying what he says because he is Lord. To submit to God is to obey what he says, even when it doesn't make sense, because he's wise. Or in the words of one commentator, he says, here's the difference. We obey whenever we do his will. We submit when we obey a command that seems hard or strange. See the difference? 
To submit to God, it requires humility because there are times more often than not that God calls us to do things that are hard and just flat out don't make sense to us. When God leads us to places we wouldn't go, calls us to do things we wouldn't do or places us in situations we don't wanna be in, it is in those moments that our humility and belief in the providence and fatherly care of God is tested. James's command to humbly submit to God should cause each of us to ask this question. In what areas of my life am I not humbly submitting to God in? Or to put it in another way, in what areas of your life are you silently saying to God, I know better? How is God this morning calling you to submit to him afresh? What are the areas in your life that you have been rebellious in? Maybe God's doing things in your life that just don't make sense to you. He's asking you to do things that you can't see the whole picture, so you're reluctant. What are the things in your life that you need to humbly submit to God? James says if you want to experience the grace of God, the first thing you must do is arrange your life under him and humble yourself by choosing to believe he is both wise and good. But not only must we humbly submit to God, notice what he says next in verse seven. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you want to experience the grace of God, first humbly submit to God, James says, but secondly, constantly resist the devil. Constantly resist the devil. We live in a world where the devil is trivialized to the point he is given his own cartoon, his own shoe, his own song, James here makes us aware of how dangerous the devil really is. I mean, we could spend a whole lot of time this morning talking about a lot of different places in the Bible where we hear about who the devil is and what he does, but just a couple here. Revelation 12 is the devil's job description. Revelation 12 tells us the devil's job description is to do two things, accuse and deceive God's people. That's what he does, does it day and night. How does he do it? Jesus tells us in John chapter eight that his primary tools are lies. What are lies exactly? Well, there's a lot that the devil uses, but John Piper in his book titled Providence, I think really dwindles it down to two. The devil primarily uses. Here's what he writes. He says, quote, Satan's two greatest strategies of deceit are pain and pleasure. Pain, he says, luring us to say, God is evil. Pleasure luring us to say, God is not needed. In other words, he deceives people in two ways. One is by misery and suffering, making us think there is no good God worth trusting. The other is by pleasure and prosperity, making us think we have all we need so that God is irrelevant. Listen, guys, all of us this week have faced, embraced, and have believed one, if not both, of those lies this week. Maybe you find yourself in an intense time of suffering this morning and you just kind of crawled into church today and all week long the devil has been whispering in your ear, God is not for you. He's not with you. He got this wrong. And you've been been starting to believe it. 
Or maybe this week the devil has been trying to convince you that you need more money, more sex, more TV, more food, more authority, more gadgets, more stuff, whatever it might be, than God. Pain and pleasure. Pain and pleasure. This is the devil's MO. So what do we do? James says, simply put, resist him. Resist him. How? By doing exactly what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. When the devil hurled lies and temptations at Jesus, what did Jesus do? He, he believed the Bible by rehearsing it. In other words, he reminded himself of what is true, and then he believed it. In the same way, when we are tempted to believe the lies of the devil, we resist by doing two things. First, reminding. Second, believing. Reminding and believing. Reminding our souls of what God has said, and then two, acting upon it, believing it. And what happens when we do this? James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil, here's the promise, and he will flee from you. This is not a hopeful wish, but a guaranteed promise. Brothers and sisters, when you resist the devil, he will not take a seat in the waiting room of your life and wait for you to stop resisting. He will, James says, flee, quite literally, run away from you. So this week when you are tempted to look, speak, act, think, spin, worry, yell, quit, or whatever the devil might be tempting you to do, remind your soul in that moment of God's word Believe it, and guess what will happen, James says? The devil will flee from you. James says, do you want to experience the grace of God? Constantly resist the devil. Negatively, we should resist the devil, but positively, James kind of flips the coin here. Look at verse eight. Positively, here's what you should do. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This means we experience the grace of God not only by humbly submitting to God and constantly resisting the devil, but also when, thirdly, we consistently pursue God. Guys, there is nothing more encouraging, I will say to you this morning, bank on it, than this. James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's incredible. This, guys, this promise is so amazing that our stubborn, fallen hearts naturally disbelieve it. We, in our natural state, y'all, we are allergic to James 4.8, allergic to it. If this week I were to say, hey, um, mark it on your calendar, we're gonna rewrite the Bible together, which never show up to a meeting like that, but figuratively speaking, let's say I did. We're gonna write the Bible together, and we're writing the Bible, get through the Old Testament, into the New. We get to, to James, write the first three chapters, get to James 4, verse 8. Blinking cursor, we got to fill in the blanks here. And we all get together in front of a whiteboard, kind of a think tank thing, start to map out what we think this verse should say according to our natural intuition. Here's what we would write. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Period. Footnote. Unless you are a total screw up, parentheses, and in that case he wants nothing to do with you. But in James 4, 8, there is no footnote, no asterisk, no fine print, no hidden clause. When you, present you, not future, future finally have my life together you, draws near to God by faith, James says, the God of heaven draws near to you. 
which means this verse is simultaneously a promise and a fight. God promises to draw near to us. It's wonderful, isn't it? Well, brothers and sisters, don't be mistaken. It is a fight to draw near to him. Or in the words of theologian Alec Motier, he writes, the central battle of the Christian life is to live near God. The battle for regularity and discipline in Bible reading, prayer, private and public worship, feasting at the Lord's table, devoting ourselves to Christian fellowship, cultivating every appointed avenue whereby we can draw near to him. Fellowship with God and its consequent blessing of his fellowship with us does not just happen. Here's an amazing insight. He says we cannot drift into it any more than we drift into holiness. It is our first obedience. In other words, there are only two possible realities of your heart and relationship to God this morning. Only two. You, this morning, are either drawing near to him or drifting away from him. You are either drawing near to God or drifting away from him. There is no middle ground. So the question we must all ask ourselves is this. Am I drawing near or drifting away? If you're here this morning and you find yourself full of the Spirit, you've been consuming the Bible all week, you've been walking with Jesus, my encouragement to you this morning is this. Keep drawing near. <laughs> keep drawing near. In fact, this is one of the primary reasons we came together to get we came to church today to sing songs, hear the Bible, listen to a mediocre preacher with a cool jacket, just saying, take communion, fellowship with one another. Why? Not so that, oh, is the worship pastor going to be Eric? Are they going to sing my favorite song? Is Mark preaching? Mark, is it preaching? I'm going home. No, that's not why we come to church here. I see some of you, okay? I see you. No, no, no. We don't come to church to consume. We come to church to draw near to God. That's why we're here. And maybe you're here this morning and your heart has slowly but surely been drifting away from God and you feel it. And if that's you, let me remind you that the very fact that you are aware of your heart drifting from God is evidence God currently is drawing near to you. Because left to our own devices, we would be blind from our own drifting. So, if you are drifting away this morning, here's my encouragement to you. Right now, in your seat, as I speak, draw near to him. Draw near to him. And he will draw near to you. Take hold of this promise from James that when you draw near to God by reading the Bible, praying to him, worshiping with other Christians, and a whole host of other things, by faith, God will draw near to you. So here's the question. What is your plan for drawing near to God this week? What's your strategy? What are you planning on doing? When do you plan to read your Bible, to pray, to share the gospel, to fellowship with other Christians this week? You know, one of the disciplines I've been implementing in my own life over the past few months is seizing the first moments of my day to draw near to God, which means happened this morning. I woke up this morning feeling like I got hit by a Mack truck at 2 a.m. last night somehow, and instead of saying to myself what I said so often, I need a nap. I said to myself, I need Jesus. 
I need Jesus so bad. I need Jesus more than a good sermon. I need Jesus more than a comfortable day. I need Jesus more than sleep. I need Jesus. It's an opportunity for me for the first moment of my day to just draw near to him and believing he will draw near to me. That's my plan. What's yours? What's your strategy for drawing near to God? If you don't have a plan for drawing near, you know what will happen naturally? You'll drift away. You'll drift away. So what will you do this week to draw near instead of drift away? James tells us that we experience the grace of God when we consistently, moment by moment, pursue God. What else can we do to experience the grace of God? Look back at James 4. Look at verse 8. He continues on. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. To experience the grace of God, James says, we must first humbly submit to God. We must constantly resist the devil, consistently pursue God. And now here, fourthly, what do we do to experience the grace of God? Genuinely repent of sin. In verse eight, James calls the original readers two names. Both sinners, secondly, double-minded. He calls them sinners because they have sinned in multiple ways. This is all over the book of James, but for example, they aren't obeying God's word in chapters one and two. They're selfish and they hurt others with their words in chapter three, and they violently dispute with one another in chapter four. And James says it's, it's these acts of sin that have revealed something deeper about them. What has it revealed? that they are double-minded. Or to use a literal translation, this literally means double-souled. Double-souled. One half of their heart is in love with God. The other half of their heart is in love with the world. They, to put it another way, they are walking with God while holding hands with the world. So what should they do? James makes it clear. Here's what you do. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does this mean? Well, in the Old Testament, to cleanse your hands and purify your heart was metaphorical language for repenting not only of the sin committed, but the heart posture that led to that sin. In other words, James is calling the original readers not to a half-hearted apology, but a holistic repentance. A repentance where they not only turn from their sinful actions, but their sinful loves. Early church father St. Augustine once remarked that repentance requires a change in both our destructive actions and our disordered hearts. Hating not only what we did, but what we loved, which led to what we did. That's repentance. And this is not to be done with a spirit of levity and laughter, but brokenness. How? Verse nine, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Laughter in the Old Testament was often used to describe the scornful person who lived in sin and refused to take it seriously in light of the judgment to come. That's why Jesus warned his disciples in Luke 6, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. 
Jesus' point is mourning and weeping on the day of God's judgment can be avoided if people mourn and weep for sin now. Which is why Jesus also said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be what? Comforted. The point here is simply this. You can either mourn over sin now or mourn under judgment later. See, James is not advocating for a joyless, laughless life. It's not. James is calling each of us here this morning to genuinely repent of sin with a broken heart. Or, as British preacher John Stott put it, quote, the uncovering of sins is painful and humiliating. It brings us to our knees in brokenness before God. But if we want to receive mercy, he says, both forgiveness for the past and power for the future, there is no other way. So, my friend, are you broken over your sin this morning? Do you come to church today like the Pharisee in Luke 18, silently saying to yourself, I'm amazing. I'm so amazing, in fact, I am, in fact, I'm so grateful. I'm not as sinful and messed up as fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. Or do you come to church this morning like the tax collector who is so broken over his sin that all he could say is, God, have mercy on me. How broken are you? Years ago, I stumbled across a worksheet from Life Action Ministries that contrasted the characteristics of broken people and proud people. The point of the worksheet is for you to read both descriptions and then ask yourself, am I proud or am I broken? There's a whole list of them. I want to read for you six this morning. And as I read them, can I just invite you even right now to just take a deep breath, kind of clear your mind and your soul of the cobwebs, and I want you just before the Lord right now, evaluate your own soul. Am I proud or am I broken? Here's the list. Proud people focus on the failures of others. Broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. Am I proud or am I broken? Proud people have a critical fault-finding spirit. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but their own with a telescope. Broken people are compassionate. They can forgive much because they know how much they have been forgiven. Proud people have a drive to be recognized and appreciated. Broken people have a sense of their own unworthiness. They're thrilled that God would even use them at all. Proud people want to be sure that no one finds out when they have sinned. Their instinct is to cover up. Broken people don't care who knows or who finds out. They are willing to be exposed because they have nothing to lose. Proud people have a subconscious feeling. This one hurts me, by the way. They have a subconscious feeling 
This church is privileged to have me and my gifts. They think of what they can do for God. Broken people have a hard attitude that says, I don't deserve to have a part in any ministry. They know they have nothing to offer God except the life of Jesus flowing through their broken lives. And then the last one, proud people have a hard time saying, I was wrong, will you please forgive me? Broken people are quick to admit failure and to seek forgiveness when necessary. Are you proud or are you broken? If you want to experience the grace of God in your life, James says, here's what you need to do. First, humbly submit to God. Secondly, constantly resist the devil. Third, consistently pursue God. And then fourth, here finally, genuinely repent of sin. Because when you do these things, whether you know it or not, you are embracing a promise that will always be true. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James is just simply repeating what he has already said in verse six. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, God stiff arms people who pretend to have it all together and live according to their own ingenuity, refusing to admit any need outside of themselves. God opposes those people. Well, on the other hand, oh, and this is glorious good news, God has a storehouse of grace with the open sign always turned on, the front door always unlocked for sinners who come knocking with nothing but need. See, the gospel is not a life enhancement strategy that adds Jesus to your already good moral life. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, lived perfectly, died horrifically, and was raised triumphantly on the behalf of dead, made a mess of my life sinners who have nothing to offer him except a cry of mercy. That's the gospel. Guys, we are messed up people. More messed up than we realized this morning. Reminds me of a Jonathan Edwards quote where he said, the only thing you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Spurgeon, I love this one. Spurgeon said, God must have loved me before I was born because I gave him no reason to love me after the fact. <laughs> there's nothing, there's never been a nanosecond in your life God has looked at you from heaven and thought, that's impressive. <laughs> never. I love how a buddy of mine who's a pastor at a church in Nashville, he says every gospel-loving follower of Jesus essentially believes three things. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. Number three, anyone can get in on this. <laughs> I love that. My friend, if you're here today and you are realizing for the first time that you come to church today with nothing but sin, Got some good news for you. If you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus, he will come to you right now, this morning, with nothing but grace. Nothing but grace. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you find yourself here discouraged by the countless ways you have sinned and broken his heart this week, you can draw near to him right now and he will draw near to you. 
He will draw near to you without pep talks, do better next time soliloquies, or a shrug of the shoulders. Again? No, 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 no. When you draw near to him right now, he draws to you, near to you with nothing but sheer grace. <laughs> Guys, James chapter 4, 7 to 10, in fact, this sermon, in fact, the entire Christian life can be boiled down to two steps, just two. Number one, go to Jesus. Number two, see number one. Humble yourselves before the Lord, James says. How? Humbly submit to God, arrange your life underneath his fatherly wisdom and love. Constantly resist the devil by reminding your soul of what's true and then believing it. Consistently pursue God, draw near, don't drift away, and then genuinely repent of sin. What will he do? And he will exalt you. Let's pray together. Father, we want to acknowledge together this morning by faith we are more sinful than we can even possibly realize right now. That even our best deeds on our best day are filthy rags before you. We are in need of a lot of grace, and we, many of us come into church this morning burdened by our own sin, self-doubt, suffering, and we want to be filled with hope. As we remember, while we are, while we are drowning in our own sin, the tideline of grace is higher still. That you are more gracious than we are sinful. And so even this morning as we respond by taking communion together, reminding our hearts of the gospel, singing songs, would you fill us with gospel hope for a people who have earned none of it, but it's been given to us by sheer grace. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen.